0: This week uh, uh, I felt early on in the week that God prompted me with a question and it was a question out of something that I was reading in the book of Daniel and in uh, Daniel chapter 11 verse 32 the word of God says that the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. You know God, you'll be strong, you'll carry out great exploits. And the question I felt God asking me was, what does it mean to really know God, the fullness of his character and how he outworks his purposes in our life? What does it mean to really know God? And as I looked into the background of what Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel was writing these words, um, he was prophesying of a time when it would be very difficult to honour a covenant with God, to be God's people. And when I looked into it a little bit further, there was a couple of specific fulfillments of this uh, passage of Scripture in Daniel 11 which talks about a time of great persecution coming against God's people and what their response was to that persecution which was they knew God, they were strong, and therefore they did great exploits. One specific fulfilment was in 165 BC, a couple of hundred years before Jesus, and three or four hundred years after Daniel, where a Syrian leader named Antiochus uh, Epiphanes came and invaded Israel, and he set up what Daniel called the abomination of desolation uh, on on, on the altar in the temple at Jerusalem, and this provoked uh, God's people to rise up in a furious response um, to what uh, the enemy did to the place that God has ch- had chosen for his residence. And there was another fulfillment in AD 70 when the Romans uh, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem and God's people had to flee. But in both of those cases, um, the uh, the people of God, the people who knew their God, drew strength from their knowledge of him and carried out great exploits for him. And so Daniel, what Daniel received in his prophecy was that he saw that in a very difficult time, a time of great persecution, God would raise up a people who would know, who would be strong and who would carry out great exploits. And I was really drawn to that word strong. What does it mean to be strong? And the various interpretations of that Hebrew word, which is hazak, means to fasten upon, to seize, to be strong, to be courageous, to be obstinate, to bind, to restrain, to conquer, to aid, to amend, to cleave, to be constant, to be established, to be fortified, to be mighty, to seize, to lay hold of, to become mighty, to prevail, to be urgent and to withstand the enemy. These are character traits that we all need to have. Amen. And all of that encompassed in this one word, hazak, which is strong, And I want to suggest to you that Daniel's prophecy is just as much for us today as it was any time in the past in history. It is a promise of God that the people who know their God will be strong and we will carry out great exploits. Today in a time of increasing turmoil around the world amidst great uncertainty about the future, God is constantly working on each one of us. Have you noticed that God has been working on you? (laughs) Anybody not notice that God has been working on you, that he wants to do something in your life? He's working uh, on each one of us. He's working within each one of us and he is working through each one of us. And the more that we get to know him and know his character and allow his working in our life, the more he will work through us as we get out of the way and allow him to move through us. He's working through each one of us, but if you don't understand his process, you won't necessarily see the process through. I have known plenty of people who came to faith in Jesus and then when things got tough, They would say things like, well, God doesn't really love me. If God really loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen or he wouldn't allow that to happen. And so they turn their back and they walk away. It's like the seed was unfruitful. It fell on hard or stony ground or the enemy stole it away. But we need to understand that God's process can be described as fire. And his process is a fire that works within us and sustains us Even as we walk through the fires of life. Anybody ever notice that you walk through some fires, through some trials, through some tribulations in your life in God? Sometimes those fires that we think are just the work of the enemy They're actually fires that God leads us into so that he can equip us, so that he can train us, so that he can deal with our character flaws, so that he can release more of his power through us, so that he can bring us more into alignment with the character of Jesus and it is the character of Jesus that we are destined to carry. How much do you look like Jesus? I'm not talking physically, I'm talking from the inside out. When people talk with you, do they feel like they've just had a conversation with Jesus? That's your destiny. And so what the fire of God within us and the trials that we go through, what they're meant to give us is an eternal perspective. Our problem sometimes is, is that we try to mould our understanding of who God is and what he does to what we would prefer to experience. It's very quiet in here. <laughs> we try to mould our understanding of who God is and what he does to what we would prefer to experience rather than what he knows is best for us. And not just for us, but for his greater purpose that he wants to work through us. Even though it might seem painful at the time. And some of the things that you're going through now even, you may not even understand this side of eternity. You might get the full revelation of the things that you've been through when you stand in the presence of God and you will suddenly have everything revealed to you and you'll go, wow, wow. That's why I went through that. And I wonder how many of you could look backwards at some of the trials that you've been through and say, God, I didn't understand it at the time and I thought it was impossible to walk through that trial But now on the other side of it, now that you brought me through that trial, I can look back at that trial and I can say, thank you, God, for taking me into the trial, not just bringing me out of it at the end or bringing me through. Thank you for taking me into that trial because in that trial, more of your character was released in me. I became more conformed to the image of Jesus through what I went through in that trial. I have learned that's, see, that's an eternal perspective. We have to get a perspective that's not just limited to however many short years we have on this Earth. Compared to eternity, our lifespan is very small. We may as well make the most of it by giving the whole lot over to God so He can work His purpose through us. And I can honestly say that I have learned just as much about God, His ways and His character through the trials I've been through as through the blessings I've received from Him. And I want to tell you I've been extraordinarily blessed in the 25 years since I laid my life down before Jesus and I said, God, I've completely made a mess of my life. If you can do anything with my life, take it and do whatever you want to do with it. And I want to tell you that was a painful process because God had to look at some of the things in my life and go, well, I think this needs to go and I think this needs to go and I think this needs transformation and this needs change and you're not going to need this and this needs to be renewed. And he would show me these things and I was like, I didn't really want to acknowledge the depth of the work God wanted and needed to do in me so that he could use me for his glory. There is no uh, testimony without a test. And uh, my wife Kerry always says to me, John, when you preach, you've always got to give an example. You've always got to give a testimony from your own life. And so I want to give you a, a, a very practical example of one of these things That uh, One of these tests that turned into a testimony in my life. After I gave my life to the Lord um, through a supernatural series of events, God gave me my own business and it was to do with uh, managing quite large companies' uh, presence on, on the internet. And in particular, I had certain clients that had to publish what's called stock exchange releases or ASX releases and they had to be on their website within a certain time of them being released to the stock exchange and that was part of my job and to promote those companies on the internet. One of the companies that I promoted in this fashion um, was actually one of the, was in the top 20 ASX list and had a market capitalization of $900 million, nearly a billion dollars, Australian dollars was its market capitalization. It was a very wealthy international gold mining company and they were my client and they were given to me supernaturally. If I told you the story behind how I even got that client, you would be blown away. But my story, my testimony is not, how, uh, is not about how I got that client, my testimony is about how I lost that client. And so um, I'd had them for a number of years. They represented a huge percentage of my company's income. And uh, I was cruising along doing the work for them, doing the work for them, never a word of complaint from them about anything. And then one morning at 11 o'clock, just after I'd started um, typing up something that I was releasing on their behalf, I got a phone call from their managing director and he said, oh, John, I'm just calling to let you know that we've decided to give your business to somebody else. And that's effective today as of right now. No, uh, no being called in saying, do you want to re-quote? There was no negotiation. There's no nothing. I was saying our relationship, our business relationship with your business is now over and it's now going to this other company. And I was like... It's like somebody hit me in the face with a shovel. <laughs> it's like it stopped in my tracks. Anyway, so... Uh, I go home and uh, I wandered in the door in shock. And I was talking to my wife, Kerry, and I said, I've got no idea how this just happened or how this came about, but I just lost, I won't name the company because it's immaterial to this testimony. I've just lost our biggest client. And uh, I had no idea why. And I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong in the relationship with them. There was nothing untoward about any aspect of my business relationship with them they just made this decision bang snap and they gave it to somebody else and I was going right well they they uh, they're actually paying for this and they're paying for that and they're paying for this and I don't know what this means for our business and all the rest of it and so I was very confused and um the the next morning I got up early and I was seeking the Lord and actually as I said this this morning when I say seeking the Lord I was actually having a bit of a whinge I was going, God, why have you taken this away from me? God, I don't understand what you're doing. I thought you were going to prosper me. God, when you gave me my business, you gave me Proverbs 13, 22. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. You've been, uh, you've been blessing me financially with this business relationship and now it's gone. I don't understand what you're doing. Why have you taken it away? It's the opposite of what you spoke over me. All this whinging, 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 whinging. Then I opened my iPad and there a prophet friend of mine had sent me a message on Messenger. And the message said, uh, said uh, and, and this uh, the, uh, I have to clarify that my friend, this, this prophetic friend of mine, knew nothing about what had happened. There's something else that I need to introduce that I forgot in this, in this story as well. The, um, there was a series of images that I used to promote this gold mining company. And the main promotional image was of a gold pour. I don't know if you've ever seen that they have this, this big kind of drum-looking thing and uh, they make the, the gold is molten and it pours down through a series of layers until it becomes an ingot in the bottom, uh, the bottom part of it and that's a gold pour. If you, if you Google gold pour, you'll probably actually see that image on Google. Anyway... Uh, So here I am, it's like 5 o'clock in the morning, I'm having a whinge to the Lord about this. My prophet friend sends me a message and um, he he sends me a prophetic word and he says that you've just lost a relationship and God says um, that it had to go. You've just lost this relationship and God said that it had to go and he sent me that image. The image that I had used to promote that company, even though he knew nothing about, I don't know why he chose that image, but he sent me the image that I used to promote that company and I knew that this was God. And it took me a while to understand what God's process was in this and that was that he was taking away what I had come to trust more than I trusted him. So I had come to trust in the financial blessing that this business had been releasing to me for a number of years rather than trusting the source of the blessing which was actually job, which was actually God. He supernaturally gave me this client and he supernaturally took it away to see where my faith actually lay. And my faith at that point was revealed by by all my whinging to God, right? Adversity, introduces you to yourself. Adversity introduces you to yourself. You know who you are when things aren't going your way. This is who you actually are. When nobody else is looking, <laughs> when you're not putting on the nice happy church face and you're waking up first thing in the morning and something's got wrong and you look in the mirror, that's who you are. That's not who you're going to stay because God's destiny for your life is to take who you are in that moment and change you. (laughs) And we don't like change. We like comfort. So when we try to avoid the test or when we choose to ignore the deeper work that God is trying to do in us we miss out on the fullness of knowing him we miss out on that eternal perspective what's god's eternal perspective it's so huge it's unbelievable he jesus is the lamb the bible says slain from before the beginning of the world before our concept of time even came into being God knew how badly you were going to screw up and he made a plan to rescue you even if you were the last person on earth the only person on earth who sinned and needed rescue God already made a provision to bring you out of darkness in the light and he already made provision to take you into a glorious future that is dependent upon him not circumstances, not not money, not fame, not your own agenda, not your own ambition. None of those things count. What counts is your ability to lay down everything and allow God to do what he wants to do in your life. See, it is immature to cherry-pick the Christian experience and focus only on the promises of God, and there are plenty of them, peace, prosperity, grace. But if we focus only on those while glossing over some of the more difficult passages of scripture that point to the deeper work that God wants to do in each one of us, we miss out on a key aspect of what God wants to do. That is to take us through our trials out the other side into something more glorious. And the Western Church has turned cherry-picking of Scripture into an art form and so we are poorly positioned and unprepared for the trials that lie ahead. We lack eternal perspective and God wants to give us eternal perspective so that we see our trials through the right lens. God's blessing, healing, forgiveness, restoration, provision and prosperity are all themes that run deeply throughout Scripture. But you don't have to look very far before you come across persecution and suffering and lack and betrayal and even martyrdom. Victorious living through both the blessings and trials of our life demonstrates our maturity in our eternal perspective. I started talking about the part that fire has to play in our Christian experience. And when we dive deep into scripture, we can see that this theme of fire runs through both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in its purpose of transformation. And there's something about uh The nature of God's fire that teaches us to dive deeper into our relationship with him so that we might know him, become strong and do great exploits. The fire of God is powerful. It's unquenchable. It is refining. It is purifying. It is all-consuming and it is holy. And when we stand before God at the end of your life, it, it, this, is, this is something that is not preached enough in the church that we are all going to stand before a perfectly holy God after we finish however many years we have on, on this earth. And when we stand before him, all that we have ever done and all the motives behind everything that we have ever done are going to be laid, bef- laid bare, naked before a holy God. And this is what the word of God says is going to happen. Each one's work will become clear. Everything I've done, the motivations behind what I've done will become clear for the day will declare it. What day? The day of the Lord. The time when we stand before the Lord because it will be revealed by fire. My work, the work that I do, um, everything that, that I have aimed for, everything I've aimed at, my agendas, my motivations, the things that I do all of them are going to be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And in the lead up to that scripture, Paul tells us that the foundations that we lay can be made of gold, they can be made of silver, they can be made of precious stones. These are good things. These are good things in God's eyes. But they can also be made of wood, they can be made of hay and they can be made of straw. What happens when you apply flame to wood or hay or straw is it's burned up, it's consumed, and and there's just the the residue of smoke going up and it's vanished and and there's, there's nothing left. But if my work is founded on gold or silver or precious stones, it stands there after the purifying of the fire and it stands there eternally because that work has been done out of an eternal perspective and out of the leading of the Holy Spirit. And whatever the call of God might be on your life, there will be fire. Have you noticed that? Have you ever walked through fire? There will be fire. It is promised and it's prophesied over all of us. And so I'm just going to take us into some passages of Scripture that talk about this in the Old Covenant, but also how it's fulfilled in the New Covenant. Because whatever the call of God might be on your life the fire of God within you is going to sustain you and the fiery trials that come against you the fire within you will equip you to walk through the fiery trials you will go through in your life and uh, so we're going to start with Moses and in Exodus chapter three Moses has just spent 40 years out the backside of nowhere herding sheep after killing an Egyptian and fleeing the consequences. And he is now a long way from Pharaoh's palace in which he was raised. Moses was raised to be a prince of Egypt. He grew up in privilege. He grew up as royalty. He grew up in wealth and honour. And somewhere in his heart, he still held on to his heritage as a Jewish man. And he saw the mistreatment of the other Jewish people around him eventually he lost his temper and he killed an an Egyptian overseer and had to go on the run. And at that point, his life must have seemed like, wow, what happened? I thought, God, you said you were going to do this. I thought you were going to do that. I thought you'd promised this over my life. I thought you'd promised that over my life. And for 40 years, he's out the back of nowhere until this day of encounter with the fire of God. In Exodus 3... Verse 1, it says that Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is the same as Mount Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. This is a miraculous manifestation of God's fire in the natural. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God put signposts in our life to draw us to him. It may not be a burning bush for you. It may have been circumstances that drew you to God. And then when God calls us and speaks to us, the correct response is always, here I am. Here I am. Do with me what you want to do. And this is the moment where God births the process of drawing his people into covenant relationship with him, the covenant relationship of the law. And for us, it is symbolic of God drawing us aside to hear him and enter into what he has for us. But there's another symbol in this story that I want you to get hold of because when we take this whole illustration into the New Testament, you're going to understand that it speaks of us. It's a prophetic picture of us, and that is the burning bush. The burning bush is symbolic of what we become when we invite God to come and live inside us somebody full of God's perpetual fire that's burning in us and yet not consuming us not killing us God's destiny for you is that his fire burn perpetually within you so that you will be sustained through everything that you walk through and later on the fire is there in the pillar of fire that led his people by day. Remember the, the story, of the pillar of fire by, day, by night, the pillar of cloud by day that led God's people through the wilderness. And then he takes them to Mount Sinai where we see the fire of God on the mountain in all its glory. And then when the people of Israel come into covenant with, with God, he says, I am going to take of this fire and I'm going to make it a perpetual presence in your midst. And so what they do as part of their covenant is they build this tabernacle in the wilderness according to God's instruction. And the promise of God is that I will go with you. Remember Moses said to God, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go up from this place. You've got to go with us. So God said, I'm going to go with you. And the sign of his presence was the glory and the fire. And the fire was to perpetually be with them wherever they went. And so we see in Leviticus... Uh, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is the consecration of the tabernacle that Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces and that fire did not go out. This is holy fire, the fire of his glory, and it produces awe and reverence and holy fear and worship. When the glory of God comes, when the fire of his presence comes, it puts us on our face before a holy God. And one of the things about stewarding the presence of God was that God required of the people of Israel and a select group of people within the wider group of the people of Israel, that they were to steward this fire and treat it with reverence, holiness and awe and take it from place to place as they moved throughout the wilderness. And when uh, somebody treated this lightly, when somebody did something willfully wrong to do with the fire of God, there were severe consequences. In Leviticus 10 verses 1 to 3, it talks about Aaron... Uh, the high priest of Israel, talks about his sons and what they did to, uh, to provoke God into great uh, anger. It says that Nadav and abihu I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord. This was not the sacred fire that they were carried to steward. This was the fire of their own making. They were casual about the things of the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So what's the result? It goes on to say in verse 2, that fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, we see in this story that Moses and Aaron are present when this happens and I want you to bear in mind that these two guys, Nadab and Abihu, they're Aaron's sons, his first and second born sons. They are the people that are going to carry um, his name, his inheritance down into the next generation. These are the sons that he wants to bless uh, with their inheritance. He wants... to bless them so that they go on and carry his name on into the future and they make this uh, critical mistake and there's Moses and Aaron and there's these two sons of Aaron and they are struck dead in the presence of the Lord because the fire comes out from his presence and completely destroys them. And Moses, in this scripture, it says in verse 3, he turns to Aaron and he says, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me i must be regarded as holy and before all the people i must be glorified and then you see this beautiful picture in one sentence where it says so aaron held his peace even though his sons had been taken from him he had an eternal perspective that he understood that the presence of god in that covenant relationship was so important that nobody was allowed to treat it disrespectfully. That's eternal perspective. This holy perpetual fire was an ongoing sign of God's presence with his people. And when uh, the tabernacle of uh, Moses was then uh, stewarded by David when he had his tabernacle. And then when David wanted to build a magnificent temple for the Lord and God said, no, 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 you're a man of war. I'm going to give it to your son to build. Solomon built this magnificent temple and we see that the fire of God was present there as well. In 2 Chronicles 7 verse 1 it says that when Solomon had finished praying, and this is at the dedication of the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This was a sign to everybody who had gathered there to worship God that that same presence, that same glory, that same anointing, that same fire was to perpetually fill this temple just as it had filled the tabernacle of David, just as it had filled the tabernacle of Moses. It says that the, that the fire and the glory were so great that the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down on the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Even in the awe-inspiring power of God expressed in fire what do they call out he is good God is good and everything that he does is good and his mercy endures forever now I've brought these stories out of the old testament because this concept of the fire of God is not just an old testament principle, not just an old testament promise, it is a promise that is held out in the new covenant to us as believers, but it has a different focus. The promises of the old testament are fulfilled in the new testament, the the, the uh, or the new covenant, the promises. Of the new covenant fulfilled in us. There is something that God wants to do in and through us. And so, this concept of holy fire was there right there at the beginning of the church, the beginning of the book of Acts. And in fact, it was prophesied before that the church first met by John the Baptist. And in Matthew 3 11, when Matthew prophesies about Jesus the Messiah coming. He prophesies a couple of things that he's going to do. He says this, I indeed baptise you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Who here has been baptised in the Holy Spirit? Okay, have you been baptised in fire? (laughs) Have you begun walking through fire with the fire of God within you? Um, And in Acts 2 verse 1 to 4, we see the beginning of fulfilment of this prophecy because it says that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all in... Agreement, not in one Honda Accord. They're all with one Accord in one. Okay. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each one of them. Here's the thing that we need to understand. The fire of God under the old covenant was promised to be in one location and one location only. That was in the tabernacle of Moses followed by the tabernacle of David followed by the temple of Solomon. And that presence was there and it was stewarded by a very select group of people. But under the new covenant, when John the Baptist prophesied about Jesus, he said, he's going to baptise you all with fire. There were 120 people gathered there in the upper room at the birth of the church, the ecclesia, and tongues of fire came down and sat on each one of them and they all spilled out into the street. They all began to prophesy in other tongues and people from all over, uh, the, the, uh, all over Jerusalem who were from other nations began to hear them speaking in their own languages. It was something miraculous. The fire of God which had just been in one location was now inside every single person who was receiving this beautiful baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And through the Old Testament, it's prophesied again and again and again. God does not dwell in a temple made with hands. He dwells in us. That same holy fire that filled the tabernacle of Moses, that filled the temple of Solomon, now fills you and I. In the Old Testament, the fire of God was present. It was with them. In the New Testament, the fire of God is indwelling. It is in us. That prophetic picture of the burning bush that I started with is fulfilled in us. We are like a burning bush perpetually burning with the fire of God. God's intention is that each of us as a burning bush attract people who are walking past and they see the fire and they want what they see. We become the burning bush that burns miraculously yet is not consumed. We are filled with holy fire for the purposes of God. And boy, do we need it. (laughs) Do we need it. And that first generation of believers, they needed it. You know, when we read the Bible, and in particular when we read the book of Acts, it's not immediately apparent the time frame of how things happen in that first generation of believers. But let me just give you this snapshot of year one of the church. So imagine, let's work work something in your imagination. Let's say a year ago today, You had heard that God wanted to do something remarkable in your life and that there was something that was going to happen that had never happened before. And that if you came into a room like this one and you hung out with other people that believed as you did, that God was going to turn up and do something extraordinary. And so you've come in and now you're a year down the track and this that I'm going to... Read out to you now is what you've just been through, okay? This is year one of the church. This is year one of your Christian life. The Holy Spirit fills them and lights them up with fire. They pour out into the streets and revival breaks out. Thousands are saved. Healings are occurring everywhere. Miracles, signs and wonders. New believers are being added daily to the church. Doesn't that sound great so far? But within that first year, Peter and John are arrested. Why are they arrested? Because they healed a man who had been crippled from birth and had been crippled for 40 years. Within that first year, Peter and John are arrested. Persecution starts. Ananias and Sapphira drop dead when they lie to the Holy Spirit. Holy fear begins to hit the fledgling church. Believers, just like you and I, are thrown into prison for no reason other than we follow Jesus. Stephen is martyred. Meanwhile, there's a young man named Saul who is hunting down believers wherever he can find them to have them sentenced to death. And the church is scattered. And out of that, one of their number ends up in a place called Samaria starts preaching the gospel and revival hits there. What's this got to do with eternal perspective? You've got to understand that that first year of the church, when the fire of God came, it came with a purpose. One of the purposes was the fulfillment of Jesus' promise, which was you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if it was not for the persecution that came across, came upon that church in that first year. Philip would never have ended up in Samaria preaching the gospel, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy and revival couldn't have come there and we would not be here today worshipping God if it wasn't for the way that God used his eternal perspective to use people down through the centuries of history right to this day that with the purpose that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea you are part of something that has prophetic purpose out of God's eternal perspective and he wants to release his eternal perspective into each one of us so we will stop making it about us and start making it about him And so I look at and as you you read through the book of Acts and as you read through what Paul had to say and what Peter had to say and all these greats of the early church, you see that they understood an eternal perspective. They saw things differently to how we in the modern church see it. They counted their circumstances in their situation as secondary to God's eternal purpose being expressed through them. And so I was thinking about God. See, about, um, about nine years ago, the Lord gave me a prophetic word. And he said, John, in Australia, you've got 10 years of religious freedom left. A couple of weeks ago in Victoria, they passed a law that when you examine the actual Uh, wording of that law it actually criminalizes the practice of Christianity I'm not going to go into all of that now all I want to I want you to get hold of is that gradually bit by bit by bit by bit our freedom to express our faith is being whittled away by successive uh, secular humanist governments who are stripping away the influence of Christianity from our culture And I'm not a doomsday prophet. I believe that even though things may get very dark um, in the future, and I believe that they will before the return of Christ, yet I believe it is God's purpose that we should have so much eternal perspective that we shine with his glory no matter what is thrown against us. And this is the beauty of the New Testament is that we have people that have gone before us who had this eternal perspective in much greater measure than we do. And we can read what they went through and what they learned, and we can ask God to give us that eternal perspective because these experiences are handed down from generation to generation to us so that we might walk in the fullness of the stature of the person who we are to be like, which is Jesus. And so I want to close this message with the eternal perspective of two of the greatest leaders of that first ecclesia, the church of Jesus that was birthed at Pentecost. Those two leaders are Peter and Paul, and they both talk about fire. So firstly, Peter, in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14, he says this, Beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Now that scripture just by itself is a revelation to me of where we lack revelation about how God works. Because in this scripture he says that fiery trials are not to be regarded as something alien or foreign or strange to us. They are actually part of our destiny. <laughs> Do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. We get before God and we whinge about everything that is not to our liking. <laughs> very quiet in here (laughs) and he says instead but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings (laughs) if I did an altar call and said everyone run down the front who wants to partake of Christ's sufferings I don't think I'm going to be swamped at the altar but he's saying to us, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. When somebody calls you an whatever, Christian, when somebody denigrates you for your faith, when somebody looks down upon you, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When somebody curses me, the glory of God is simultaneously coming upon me. This is wild. This is wild stuff. This is the Bible, right? <laughs> on their part, he's blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. Have you ever kind of thought, through these scriptures like really kind of gone what does this mean for me see these fiery trials what he's talking about here it's something that produces eternal perspective that whatever trial you you might be going through god has a purpose in that trial to release his glory upon you and in you and through you that's peter now look at the story of Paul, who starts off as he's, being, he's, he's known as Saul. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's been raised up by the most famous Pharisee of his time, this man Gamaliel. And so when, uh, when the religious leaders decide they're going to put Stephen to death, Saul, or Paul as he becomes known, is really happy about this. And in fact, he's standing off to the side and he's looking after people's cloaks as they hand them to him while they pick up rocks to stone Stephen. And he's so inspired by what he, so, what he sees, he decides he's going to go out and he's going to persecute and imprison and put to death every Christian he can find. And then he has an encounter with God, just like Moses did. He's there on the road to Damascus and he's, he's walking along this dusty road and all of a sudden the glory of God, the light of heaven, shines down upon him and Jesus says to him, Why are you persecuting me? His life is transformed. He is blinded in the natural so that he can receive his spiritual sight. He is sent on to Damascus by the Lord and he's sitting there fasting and praying. And in the meantime, God speaks to a a believer in that town called Ananias, not the one that obviously died in the terror of the Lord, but another Ananias. And this humble servant of God, hears the Lord speaking to him and says, I want you to go and find this guy, Saul, and I want you to restore his sight. And then he says something very interesting. He says, for I have shown him how much he is, he is to suffer and is to suffer for my sake and the gospel. And so this is what Paul had to say about suffering for the gospel. And what I want you to see is his eternal perspective about what he walked through. In 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, I don't know what he considered to be light affliction, but I think his measure of affliction is different to mine because I'm going to describe his afflictions in a minute and you're going to see that he went through more than just light affliction. But he calls it all light affliction. For our light affliction, which is bucked for a moment, is working for us. <laughs> when last time you were persecuted, did you understand that The persecution was working for you. Sylvia, did you know that when your children mocked you for your faith, It was actually working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Then he says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's eternal perspective where you can lay down the things that are seen so that you can have the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. You don't see the fire in you, but God does, and that fire is eternal. In 2 Corinthians 11, which is uh, further on from this, when Paul defends his ministry to others, he gives them a list of the things that he's gone through. I'm just going to paraphrase it by saying this. When he was exhausted from his work, when he had been whipped, thrown in prison, this is all light affliction. Can I just remind you, this is the light affliction that he's talking about. When he was exhausted from his work, when he had been whipped, thrown in prison, seen death all around him, when he had been beaten, when he had been stoned outside a city by religious leaders or shipwrecked, when he was on long arduous journeys through bad lands teeming with robbers, when he was betrayed by those he served, when he was hungry, when he was thirsty, when he was naked, all these light afflictions, when he was cold, when he was unable to sleep, yet his heart was toward God and there was something that came upon him even in all these afflictions that he had this desperate desire to see what God had founded grow and be edified and become all that it it was destined to be. His heart was for the church even when there were other church leaders persecuting him and speaking against him. His heart was toward God because his purpose was clear in what God had called him to and he refused to allow any of these things to distract him. He had eternal perspective. God let us have an eternal perspective without having to go through all that. I have no desire to go through what Paul went through. Let me just be honest with you. Some people will get up and say, oh, I just want to, Be martyred for the sake of the gospel. I want to tell you my flesh does not desire that. I want to be blessed. (laughs) But the Bible says to me that there are going to be fiery trials. The Bible says to me there's going to be persecution. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be things that you don't like. (laughs) And yet it is working his glory in you. It's working his glory in me. This is eternal perspective. This is the perspective we must have for the times that are coming. It is from an eternal perspective that Paul viewed both his suffering and his accomplishments. He counted them all as rubbish so long as he could know Jesus more. And it was his fervent desire that we gain that eternal perspective that is so liberating. When you have an eternal perspective, it is liberating. It doesn't matter to you that that something happened to you that was unjust or it was wrong, it doesn't matter as much because you see that God is working even in the midst of your suffering. And it brought Paul to the place where he could give us this, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. When somebody comes and says something to you that you don't like, is this your testimony? That you have been crucified with Christ and those words whether true or untrue, cannot move you from an eternal perspective. See, we all have our unique testimony. We all have our unique experience with God. And as we go further and further in our journey with the Lord, It is his purpose that we gain that eternal perspective because when we operate out of an eternal perspective, we are more effective for the kingdom. You can't walk in faith and doubt at the same time. You can't walk in faith and fear at the same time. They cancel each other to a degree. I remember a preacher friend of mine who came through a number of times in our church and he, he would often tell this story about this encounter this encounter that he had with God where God had called him to a work of faith. And Raph was fearful about what God had called to him, what God had called him to. He couldn't see how it could be accomplished. He couldn't see how it could be built. And so God spoke to him one morning and said, Raph, I can't bless your fear. I can only bless your faith. And he began to repent of his fear and embrace faith and exercise faith. And one of the specific things that God had said to him was that he would give him a property in uh, South Australia from which the glory of God would be established and go out and bring transformation to the community around him. I've seen the photos of that completed work. God brought it to completion. Daniel 11, 32. The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Paul knew his God. Paul was strong. Paul did great exploits. Peter knew his God. Peter was strong. Peter did great exploits. You know God you will be strong. You will do great exploits. That's God's destiny for your life. The only person that can hinder that destiny is you. Is that right? And so I want to encourage you as I'm being encouraged and challenged in this season, that as we lay down our ideas of what And how God works in our lives and just let him be God and stop trying to be in control of everything. He's going to work out his purposes in your life. He's going to work it out in my life. He's going to work it out in our lives together. God's going to do amazing things in this next season even though the world looks darker and darker and darker. That's what's prophesied in scripture. But the... the word of God says that in a time of persecution, a time of great darkness, that the people who know their God shall be strong they shall be, and they shall carry out great exploits. Can I ask the worship team to come back up for um, a few minutes as we worship the Lord? And um, this morning when I preached uh, before the meeting, God gave me some words of knowledge and I thought that uh, these words of knowledge, uh, there was uh, four words of knowledge. I thought I was going to have four people respond to those words of knowledge, but we probably ended up with what, 15 or 16 people. There were multiples responding to each of these words of knowledge. So I believe that there's people here tonight that, that these words of knowledge are also going to minister to you. And so... Um, I just want to, before the worship team starts, I want to just uh, speak out these words of knowledge and I've got one additional one that's specifically for tonight. And uh, if this is you, if one of these words of knowledge speaks to where you are at right now in your life, I just want you to stand for me, okay? So the first one is for those who are suffering an agony of indecision. You have a big decision to make in your life and you find that the decision-making process is actually agonising for you. It's very difficult for you to make this decision one way or the other. Just hang on for a sec, Pete. Just keep it down a little bit. The second one is for uh, somebody who's been suffering recurring chest pains. So if uh, if you're suffering from chest pains... Um, God wants to heal you tonight. There's somebody else um, and you're suffering from an irrational fear. For those of you watching from live stream, this could be for you. Um, and uh, if you are subscribed to the YouTube channel, you can, you can put your response uh, in a comment and Lucas will see it and he'll point it out to me as he did this morning when we had somebody with chest pains in what country was it? Ghana. So we had somebody respond to a word of knowledge in Ghana and I believe that they were healed as we released them out of that. Somebody uh, suffering from irrational fear. You have a fear that comes upon you. You don't know what the source of that fear is. It makes no sense to you. You've been fighting it and fighting it and fighting it and God wants to set you free. Somebody else with a twisted muscle somewhere in your midsection or stomach area, God wants to heal that. And the last one is, this one specific to, Uh, To tonight that there's uh, at least one person, probably more, and you're suffering from recurring depression. And I believe that God wants to lift that fog of depression off your life tonight. So as the worship team begins to worship, uh, let's all stand tonight. And uh, if you would like to respond to one of those words of knowledge, just come out the front and myself or one of our ministry team We'll pray for you and you're going to be set free of uh, of these conditions. So just to run through them again, if you're suffering from a problem with being unable to make a decision, if you have recurring chest pains, if you're suffering from irrational fear, if you have a twisted muscle somewhere in your midsection and and you move certain ways and it causes you pain, God wants to heal you. And if you suffer from recurring depression, God wants to lift that depression off you. Now, Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for your Logos word, but also for your Rema word, expressing the word of knowledge. I want to thank you, Father God, that as people respond to what you are saying right now, that, Lord, you come in your power and in your glory and that you set us free, Lord, from the things that have afflicted us, from the things that have held us back from what you want to do in our lives.